dismissed with uh, Mr. Marco and Mr. Josh uh, for Children's Church today. Miss Elizabeth is unable to be here today, and so I'm glad that Josh is able to help. Psalm chapter 2 in your Bibles, as you're turning there, I'll just preface. In a moment, we'll read the entire psalm, all 12 verses, and I'll give a brief explanation as we move through it. I want to preach a message this morning entitled, The Father's Laughter. I touched on this around Father's Day, but... Uh, I've developed a full message on it, and I want us to think about the importance of the Father's laughter. And then, you know, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 48, Be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's not talking about sinlessness. Obviously, God is sinless. What he's referring to is be whole, be complete, be balanced in your person. And as we look at Psalm chapter number 2, we find a reference to the fact that the Heavenly Father laughs. And I am wanting us to consider this morning the importance, especially in a home, of the Father's laughter. And the impression that that can make, not just on those that are immediately in the home, but on the perspective, the view that that home will have for generations to come. And uh, even as I have developed this message and have thought about it, and I've shared this with you before, I'm reminded of the indelible impression that my own dad's laughter and sense of humor uh, has made on us and continues to shape uh, our thinking. My kids have said to me, you laugh just like your dad. And uh, there's a, there are a couple of unique characteristics to my father's laughter. And so I want us to consider this this morning And understand in the big picture here that it's not just a message addressed to fathers and grandfathers, but really all of us. Mothers in the home, when your husband is away at work, you have a tremendous opportunity to shape the perspective of your home based on your laughter, your joy, your sense of humor as well. Notice if you would, beginning in Psalm chapter number 2, let me just mention this. When it comes to the prophecy in Scripture... What do you think the purpose of prophecy is? A large portion of the scripture is prophetic. That is speaking about events that have yet to take place, but God tells us what is coming. What do you think the purpose is? You know, there are a lot of people that have made money on prophecy. They go around, they have prophecy conferences, and they want to tell you they figured out what, uh, and I've heard one preacher say this, what the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the toenail... The, the toenail polish on the toenails of the horse, the pale horse of Revelation mean, and what each of those colors means and all this. And they get everybody all fascinated, and they have no more clue than it. I, I would almost think there are times when the Lord would say, I didn't mean that. Okay. But they make a lot of money on it. Let me tell you that one of the greatest purposes of prophecy is not to fascinate us, not to create sensationalism, But, and you'll find this, Jesus even said, I'm telling you some of these things beforehand so that when you'll know when it comes to pass that I'm who I said I am. One of the great purposes of prophecy is to know God, to get to know him better. Keep that in mind as we read Psalm 2. And this is a panorama psalm. It's a prophetic psalm. It basically is giving us a big picture of the entire working and plan of God all the way from the beginning of time until 
the end of time and entering into eternity. All the way from the beginning of time to the millennial kingdom, which is yet future to us, when Christ will return and reign for a thousand years on earth. Won't that be a wonderful time? Okay. You know, we would love for that. I was thinking again about Marshall Morgan and how every time I'm with Marshall Morgan, he raises his hand to heaven and he says, Even so, come Lord Jesus. How many of you have been saying that lately? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Okay. And uh, you're on good Bible ground when you do, by the way. That's how John finished the book of Revelation. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But it's, So keep this in mind. It's a big picture, okay? Notice what the psalmist David asks. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The word rage means riot. Have we seen any of those in the last year? Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Uh, the idea of they assemble, they're scheming, they're planning something that is going to be fruitless in the end. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's talking about God the Father, and his anointed, that's talking about Messiah. The word Messiah means the anointed one. And so the rulers of the uh, earth, the kings of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, against God the Father and God the Son, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Let us rebel against God if we all join hand in hand, the scripture says. We can throw off the reign of God. And in one big panorama, David under inspiration from kings like Nimrod through the Nebuchadnezzars and the Pharaohs, and the Caesars, and the Vladimir Putins, and the Joseph Stalins, and the Hugo Chavezes, and any other dictator, any other tyrant, any other king you want to throw into that mix that thinks he can do what he does without God. He lumps them all in one big pile, and he says they gather together in their successive reigns, and they think they can throw off the reins of God, the sovereignty of God. Let me just say this as I outline this chapter, and I look at verses 1 through 3 in the outline of this psalm. Let me just say this. What you see horizontally is not the whole picture. It's very easy for us to look at time and history and even what's going on right now and be overwhelmed or have consternation in our hearts as we look around and we see what's happening in our country and other parts of the world, have consternation over that. Remember, what you see is not the whole picture. Notice verse number four. And this is where we'll come back to for our text in a moment. He that sitteth in the heavens shall... What's the word? Laugh. God laughing? Yes. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. The word derision means speechless or stammering. All of their scheming, all of their planning is all going to come to dumbfounded stammering in the end. Verse number five. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. The word vex is the idea of troubling and sore displeasure. Let me just mention this. And, and I understand we're talking about balance here, okay? There is such a thing as righteous anger. But the words that David used here to speak of wrath and sore displeasure, the phrase sore displeasure in particular is used 40 times, the original words used 40 times, and it is only used in reference to the anger of God. Never is it used to describe man's anger. 
It's talking about God's culminating anger when the kings of the earth and the people of the earth have sinned away their day of grace through the long-suffering and the mercy of God, and God at the end of time says, okay, it's enough. And it comes in succession. Right now, as he looks at all of this, there's a sense in which he laughs, but there's a day coming when he will vex them in his sore displeasure. And then notice verse number six. What does he say? What does God say? Yet, yet the idea of in spite of all the kings of the earth and all the schemes and all the forms of government that have ever been on this planet, in spite of all of it, God says, I am still going to set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Who is that king? It's King Jesus. And when he returns at the end of the tribulation period, he is going to set up his throne, establish the millennial kingdom, and there is nothing no king can do to stop that. Jesus is then the king of kings. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. As I look at verses 4 through 6, this is the thought. 1 through 3, what you see is not the whole picture. Verses 4 through 6, what is taking place in heaven is the whole picture. We need to formulate our worldview, our perspective of what we see horizontally through what we know the Bible says is taking place vertically in heaven. Then I want you to notice beginning in verse number 7. The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, speaks at some point in eternity past. I will declare the decree. The Lord or the Father hath said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. This is not talking about Jesus having a beginning. Notice, if you would, as you look at this verse, the Father is talking to the Son, telling him of a time when he will be begotten. He's speaking to someone already in existence. The Father speaking to the Son already in existence. So begotten doesn't mean the beginning of existence. What is this referring to? This is referring to Christ's entrance into humanity, in what we call the incarnation. And everything that is involved in the incarnation... Christ's perfect life, his works, his miracles, his words, all of this culminating in his substitutionary death on the cross in our place, in my place condemned he stood. Why? Because he had lived a perfect life. He was the sinless, spotless lamb of God and therefore he was the only one qualified to die for us. He died for you and for me. He was placed dead in a grave on the morning of the third day as a part of all this work of the incarnation. He raised victorious from the dead as the Lord of life. Soon after that, he ascended back to heaven. And at this very moment, the Bible teaches us, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the Father to say, go get your children. Big picture. And so, verse number 7 is the Son saying... Let me tell you what the Father told me. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son this day of I begotten thee. And then the Father says to the Son, Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. Talking about the nations of the earth. And so the Father tells the Son, 
ask of me whatever you want and I will give it to you. And the son says, I want the nations of the earth. I want to rule and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is looking forward to, as you compare scripture with scripture, to the millennial kingdom when Christ will rule and reign on earth for a thousand years. And those of us who are believers will be glorified and we too will rule and reign with him. Big picture. So get this. What you see right now isn't the whole picture. If you want to know the whole picture, look to what's taking place in heaven. And then recognize this, that everything that the Son has asked for from the Father, the Father will give him. So what is the practical conclusion? That moves us to the final three verses. Verse number 11, what should a person do? Whoever they are, what should they do because of who Jesus is and because of what the Father has said to him and in the face of what we see on earth and what we know is taking place in heaven, what should be the response? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. It's the idea of submission. Submit to the Son, lest He be angry, lest you sin all the way up to that point where your grace runs out, so to speak. And the time of judgment comes, and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. And then notice how the psalm ends. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. Verse number 10, I missed verse number 10. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, and be instructed, ye judges of the earth. So from the top down, even kings that maybe had formerly been in rebellion against God, there's still an opportunity for those who are still alive to submit. I want to say this. If Vladimir Putin responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God and recognized himself as a sinner and that he deserved hell and that there's nothing that he could do to save himself. And in faith and repentance, he cried out to Jesus Christ, trusting in him as his Savior and his Redeemer. According to the Bible, God would save Vladimir Putin. That was quiet. And we would be in heaven with Vladimir Putin. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, Amen. But all this to say, right in the... So that's the big picture of this prophetic psalm. But all this to say, verse number four, he that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. I want to just very practically this morning, after giving you that overview of the psalm, the interpretation, I want you to consider with me that this morning the importance of a father's laughter, the power of a father's laughter. Jesus said, ask and receive that your joy may be full. You understand that it is God's will for you and for me to live in the fullness of joy. You understand that, right? Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit of God's living inside of you and He's not being hindered by sin, He is going to produce your sin or my sin, He's going to produce the fruit of joy. I saw a quote this week, joy is the most infallible sign of the presence of God in the believer's life. We could define joy this way. It's the visible evidence of the sense of well-being that comes to the believer from trusting in God's sovereignty, that is, he's completely in control all the time, trusting in God's goodness. I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, and trusting in God's love. Keep yourselves in the love of God. It is that visible evidence of that sense of well-being that comes from trusting in the sovereignty of God He's in complete control no matter what I see at the horizontal level. 
He is always good all the time. Even when the dark clouds of circumstances and the lies of the devil whispering in my ear may try to convince me otherwise. And he always loves me. One of the biggest lies the devil will whisper in a believer's ear in particular, anybody's ear, is God doesn't love you. If he loved you, he wouldn't let such and such happen. But joy is the evidence, the visible evidence of the sense of well-being that we can have. Now, that being said, I have fond memories of my dad's expression of joy. And when we talk about a father's laughter in particular, I want you to understand this morning that I know that different people express their joy different ways. Okay? I come from stock where when you laugh, you really laugh. The head goes back like that commercial years ago, that toothbrush commercial, that flip-top head. The head goes back, and I mean it is unrestrained. But I know not everybody expresses joy like that. Take, for instance, four men, completely different, who go to a sporting event with their favorite team, and when their team scores a run or scores a point, you can see how joy can be expressed in different ways, and yet it's all genuine joy. You can have one guy, he gets so excited, he's all out there, he starts making primal noises, you know. When he's excited, jumping up and down, screaming, yelling at the top of his lungs until he's hoarse. I know not everybody expresses joy that way. Some people do. Then you might have one guy, when he expresses joy, he, he cries. Have you ever seen somebody, when they're happy, they cry? I'm thinking of two men in this auditorium right now who, when they express joy, they cry. They're not necessarily what I would call big laughters, laughers, but when they're happy, tears come to their eyes. Their lip will quiver, and that's a different expression, but it's just as much joy, an expression of that. I think about one guy, he might just stand there and smile. <laughs> my my father-in-law, and I was thinking, there's another man in this auditorium. When he gets happy, he's not a big laughter, but his eyes spark. You ever seen somebody, they just are overjoyed about something, their eyes just sparkle. It's just like their eyes are a collection of candles just lighting up the night. And you can see something different comes into their eyes. There might be another guy, he's, he's filled with joy and he just stands there and just, just like this. So I'm saying all that to say this, just because you may not be a laugher like somebody else is a laugher, that doesn't mean that you don't still have a responsibility to express joy, and it doesn't mean that you're not having an impact. The importance of laughter, and let me say this as well, it is important for us to understand that there are wrong kinds of laughter. There are kinds of laughter that we need to avoid Unbelieving laughter. Unbelieving laughter. If you remember the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 when God came to him and uh, Abraham said, oh, that Ishmael would live before thee. And the Lord said, no, 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 no. Uh-uh. It's not going to be Ishmael. I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham's like, Lord, I'm 100. <laughs> and Sarah is 90. And the Bible says he laughed so hard that he fell on his face. And God said, it's going to get done. Chapter number 18, God came to Abraham again. Sarai was listening through the tent wall. She overheard it and she laughed. And the Lord said, Sarah, you're laughing. She said, oh, no, no, I'm not laughing. 
Yes, you were, and it's going to happen. And sure enough, the Lord came back by a year later. Sarah was with child, and in Genesis chapter number 21, she said this. She, they named that baby. Does anybody remember what they named that baby? Abraham and Sarah had a baby. Okay, basic Bible knowledge here. Had a baby named Isaac. Does anybody know what Isaac means? Laughter. Laughter. And essentially, Abraham and Sarah named this boy Isaac, which means laughter. And they said this, God has made us to laugh. In other words, God got the last laugh. But you know, if we're not careful, we can laugh at things, and it's an unbelieving laugh. <laughs> yeah, God changed that person? Right. <laughs> God in control sure doesn't look like it right now. Now, there's a sense in which I believe Abraham came to the point of laughing at himself in faith. I've shared with you the story this morning about, or uh, recently about uh, one of uh, my favorite memories of my dad when we had a hard winter one year there in Wayland and we had scraped all the snow off the church walks and the main street right in front of the parsonage, right in front of the church, the main street was a sheet of ice. It was like a hockey rink. And after we had finished, we were going to have some fun. My brothers and I threw off our shovels and we were running down the street and we were skiing down the middle of Main Street in Wayland, Missouri. Now, it's a town of four to 500 people, but this is the central intersection. This would be like one of the four-way stops or stoplight sections. Can you imagine me skiing down the middle of the street in Columbus? Just imagine that. So my dad is watching us do this and he decides he's going to do it. And I can still close my eyes and watch Dad get a running start. And he planted his feet. Later on, he would testify. He said, I knew I was in trouble when I looked up and saw the sun between my feet. <laughs> out the feet went. <laughs> down he came hard on the ground. Knocked the wind out of him. And yet, as soon as he got his breath, of course, we're all looking around like, who saw that happen? My dad starts laughing at himself, rolling in the middle of the street. I'm like, here's the pastor, the respectable pastor, rolling in Main Street laughing at himself. Unkind laughter is a wrong kind of laughter. In addition to unbelieving laughter, unkind laughter. I believe we cross a line in laughing at others when we laugh at things they cannot change. When we laugh at a handicap, that's sinful. When we laugh at a person's heritage, their ethnicity, something they cannot change. That's unkind laughter. Ungodly laughter is a wrong kind of laughter. Proverbs 26 and verse number 18, As a madman that casteth firebrands, arrows, and death, so is a man that deceiveth his neighbor and saith, Am I not in sport? I'm just having a good time here. <laughs> That's ungodly laughter. Proverbs 14 and verse number 9, laughter at sin is ungodly laughter. Fools make a mock at sin, the scripture says. Proverbs 17 and verse number 5, and this really goes along with unkind laughter too. But the Bible says that whoso reproacheth or mock, whoso mocketh or reproacheth the poor mocketh his maker. You make fun of someone made in the image of God about something they can't help or part of their life that they can't change, that's sinful. God takes that seriously. There's such a thing, too, as untimely laughter. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter number 3, there's a time to laugh and a time to cry. 
and knowing the appropriateness of the time. Dad always used to say this. He used to say that you can tell a man by three things. What makes him laugh, what makes him cry, and what makes him angry. What makes him laugh, what makes him cry, and what makes him angry. Now, all this said, I want you to understand this morning as we consider this statement here about the Heavenly Father laughing and our wanting to be like Him and the impact that laughter has on our children, on our wives, on our home, on our workplace. I want you to understand this morning that your laughter, my laughter, has the ability to impact our children, our family. My laughter as pastor has the ability to impact this church. Your laughter in the workplace has a profound ability to provide security in your home, security at the workplace, to shape people's perspective of a situation when it's the right kind of laughter. As I look at Psalm chapter number 2, I want you to notice several things that laughter communicates. Taking the Father's laughter as an example, I want you to notice this. Number one, laughter, the right kind of laughter at the right time. This kind of laughter, godly laughter, communicates calm in the midst of chaos. It communicates calm in the midst of chaos. When you can laugh when everything else seems to be crumbling... That communicates calm, and that will provide stability and security to those that you influence. You look at the first three verses of this psalm, and from a human perspective, as you look at these kings and these heathen raging against the Lord, seeking to break off his bands, to go their own way, to rebel against the control of God, the sovereignty of God, the plan of God, that is a recipe for chaos, and yet the Father laughs. Because he is sovereign, because he's good, because he loves his people, and because his plan will prevail. And he communicates through his laughter. Listen, you don't have to worry about all the chaos around. I'm in complete control. And one of the ways that he provides that or communicates that is through his laughter. Dads, when difficult times come and it is appropriate, it is very fitting for us to laugh, to communicate calm, even in the midst of chaos. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul at midnight with Silas in a jail in Philippi? When many people would have been complaining or calling their lawyer, trying to find out how they're going to get out, Paul and Silas in the middle of night at midnight are praising God and singing. It caused an earthquake. It caused a Philippian jailer to hear the gospel and request what he must do in order to be saved. They're praising God at midnight in difficult circumstances had a profound impact that literally helped to give birth to the church at Philippi because these men could praise God in the middle of their difficult circumstances. I was thinking this past week about the farmer that I used to work for. Though he never had any children of his own, my brothers and I all worked for him uh, in our teen years. I started working for him when I was 15 until I was 19, then my brother Levi worked for him for a while, and my brother Stephen worked for him until he retired. His name was Hugh Hegerman. He's with the Lord now. Hugh never had any children of his own, but he had a profound influence. And one of the things I appreciated thinking back on Hugh Hegerman's influence, this 
crusty farmer from northeast Missouri is that very little rattled him. And by the way, when you're working around farm equipment, that's probably a good thing. We were, I had asked uh, at the beginning of the day, I said, hey, my mom's got a special supper planned for us tonight. We got company coming over. Is it okay if we got off early tonight? And it was a time of year when we could do that. It wasn't harvester planting where we were burning the midnight oil, working from daylight till dark. It was off season. He was like, sure, that'll be fine. So I was doing some brush hogging with a small tractor and a three-point hitch brush hog. And it came time at the end of the day to load up and go home. And I was pulling the tractor up on the trailer. And it had a guardrail right up the front. It's already hooked up to the utility truck, the big F-350 Ford truck. I was pulling it up on there, and my foot slipped off the clutch and hopped that tractor right up over the front guardrail and left it seesawing on its crankcase on the guardrail at the front of that trailer. It could have been very bad. I'm sitting here waiting for an explosion from Hugh. And instead, he's standing off to the side. He pulls off his hat, scratches his head like this, and smiles <laughs> and kind of snickered. And he looked, he goes, well, I guess you better get on the radio and call Sandra. That was his wife. And have her call your mother. This was before cell phones, by the way. Okay. He said, I guess you better get on the radio, call Sandra, and have her call your mom and tell her <laughs> you're going to be late for supper. <laughs> and I have thought of that a hundred times. How his laughter in the middle of a difficult situation, just calmed everything down. It wasn't but two minutes. A fellow farmer came by with his big cab tractor and a front-end loader. They hooked it on the front of that tractor, literally picked it up, scooted it back, set it down back on the trailer. We chained it off and went home, and I was home in time for supper. But, you know, that could have been a potentially volatile situation. If he would have blown off in a rage, but instead he laughed about it and kept calm. And to this day, it's made an impact on me. Calm in the midst of chaos can be communicated through laughter. But as I look at this psalm as well, and I see the heathen raging, thinking they're going to do their own thing, that they're going to set up their own plans, and then I look at the father laughing, and the father saying, no, let me tell you what my plan is. I'm still going to set my king on my holy hill of Zion. He's still going to reign on the earth. Everybody is going to be brought into submission to him, and he will reign as king of kings, and it's signed, sealed, and delivered. It's as good as done. Somebody said years ago that Bible prophecy is history written in advance. It's as good as done. And the father laughs, even as he looks at the heathen and the kings of the earth raging in the midst of this chaos. He laughs, number two, I want you to notice this, because of certainty of what's coming. He knows what's coming. He's determined what's coming. The father looks ahead to the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, yet to take place when David wrote Psalm 2. He looks ahead to the work of Christ on earth, to his perfect life, his miracles, his words, his works. He looks forward to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, to Christ's ascension, and then his return, and setting up his kingdom on earth, and that he will reign forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And the Father looks at that, because of that, 
He laughs when he sees those who think they can undermine his plan. Why? Because there's certainty in what is coming. Now, I'm glad that God has given to you and me a book that tells us what is coming. And you and I can place our faith in what is coming and we can have certainty that allows us, even in the midst of all the turmoil of this world, to still be able to laugh because our God is sovereign, our God is good, and He loves us and everything is all right in the Father's house. I had planned to say more about the laughter of Christ and Christ's sense of humor one of the problems that I have with movies about Christ is I don't think they portray him very well at all. Okay, sometimes they, they make, can I say this, they make him too human, almost crass. Other times he's like a robot walking around, like an android. The understanding that Jesus was all God and all man is the teaching of Scripture. He made us with laughter and a sense of humor. And if he's all man, that means he had a sense of humor. Now, to be sure, the Mideastern sense of humor is different than the Western sense of humor. I appreciated our tour guide, Ellie, uh, when we were visiting Israel. They have to have a four-year degree in order to be certified by the government of Israel to give tours over there. I think probably they have to take one whole class on Western sense of humor. Ellie, our tour guide, he had it down. I mean, he had us in stitches. He had figured out, even as an Israeli, he had figured out our Western sense of humor. But I'm afraid there are a lot of us Western Americans, we interpret everything through our Western mindset, and we look at what was really funny, things that Jesus said to a Mideastern in the first century, and we're like, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. It's called a hyperbole. And in first century Mideastern mindset, that was a side splitter. To watch these Pharisees, ye blind guides, so scrupulous about all your man-made rules that you'll strain your soup to make sure that there's not one gnat in there that will defile you on the inside. Jesus would in all seriousness say, you need to remember it's not what goes into a man that defiles you. You've got all your religious regulations, you strain at a gnat, and yet you'll overlook the weightier matters of the law like judgment and love and mercy. You'll overlook those things and you'll get all upset over something really small and yet you'll swallow like a camel your bitterness or your lust. And I can imagine some of those everyday people sitting on the outskirts as Jesus said that and somebody going, (coughs) swallow a camel. Can you just imagine that? It's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. Now, I know that there are some who've said, well, that's talking about the little gate that only a man could enter through. Then how do you explain swallowing a camel? Jesus is using a big hyperbole. And these people would have thought, in the first century, that was hilarious. He had a sense of humor. He was was a man of joy. A man of joy. Why do you think he did what he did at the wedding at Cana? 
turning water into wine, you understand that in that first century culture, a, a, a faux pas, like letting the wine run out at a wedding, was something that would mark a family's reputation for years to come. Negatively. And Jesus knew this was an atmosphere of joy, and he contributed to the joy by turning the water into wine to save the embarrassment that would have come otherwise. We could go on and on. I personally don't think that children would have been attracted to Jesus like they were if he had not had at some level a good sense of humor. Okay. So... Laughter, father's laughter communicates calm in the midst of chaos, certainty at what's coming. A number of years ago, I was studying one rainy Sunday afternoon. It was storming outside, and I heard this bird chirping. And I remember thinking, I've got to find out where that bird is. This is one optimistic bird. I got up, I started walking to the windows. I mean, it's just thundering and lightning. The rain is pouring down outside. Where is this bird? And I'm looking everywhere for this bird. Where is he hiding? Because it's just drenching outside. And finally, I walked past a laptop that Jenny used for homeschooling, and it had on it a little educational, Winnie the Pooh educational game, and it was the screensaver in the background sound, this bird chirping. So I was so disappointed, but I got to tell you, there is such a thing as communicating joy in the midst of a storm through laughter, because I know that this storm is not the end. On the other side of the cross is an empty tomb, and you won't find him there anymore. And on the other side of the trials and the difficulties of this life, remember, every trial is temporary, and we can laugh because of that. I'll just say this briefly and then move to a final point. I think another wonderful thing that laughter communicates, not only calm and chaos, not only certainty at what's coming as we look at this psalm, but it also communicates courage in the midst of conf conflict. We're right. We're standing on solid ground here. And we can laugh. The right kind of laughter. Fourthly, as I think about the last three verses of this psalm in the context of the Father's laugh and the fact that the kings of the earth are admonished to be wise. Listen, make a wise choice. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Submit yourselves to him because a day of judgment is coming. It's interesting. The psalm begins with kings shaking their fist in the face of God, and yet the psalm also ends with some of those same kings being admonished. Listen, you can repent. You can demonstrate biblical wisdom. You can submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ and avoid coming judgment. It's a testimony, get this, to the power of God to change even the hardest of people. And laughter communicates, I want you to notice fourthly and finally, laughter communicates when a father laughs, when a leader laughs, it communicates confidence in God's power to change people and circumstances. God is bigger than this situation. God is bigger than what's taking place in the White House right now. God is bigger than that. God is bigger than whatever takes place in the UN General Assembly in New York City. God is bigger than that. 
And because he is, and because his plan will prevail, and because he is sovereign, and because he is good, and because he loves his people, and he loves the whole world so much that he gave his only begotten son, I can rest in that. And I can communicate confidence in God's ability to work in even the most difficult of situations and bring about change in people's lives. We need to avoid nervous and cynical laughter. It shows a lack of trust in God. I'll close with this. As many of us know, my brother just recently took the pastorate, Levi did, of a church my dad founded 47 years ago. Levi's now the sixth pastor. Several of the men who are deacons or on the pulpit committee were men that my dad led to Christ 35, 40 years ago. One of those in particular, Dwayne is his name. I won't mention his last name. I had the privilege of meeting him back in March when we were passing through there. When my dad was first uh, crossed paths with Dwayne, he was a motorcycle Harley Davidson guy with a ponytail cleared onto his tailbone. Rough. Rough. And uh, I, I don't even remember all of the... the background about Dwayne. But I do remember this. As my dad began to witness to Dwayne and sow seed in his life, I remember particular times that we would go over to Dwayne and Rose's house. And just in, in the calm atmosphere of a family meal, he still had a ponytail for some of that time, by the way. The calm atmosphere of a family meal, they'd get out games, we'd play games. Now you're going <gasps> to, there'll be a collective gasp. I even remember my dad sitting down in the living room in front of their television and playing video games. It may have been like Pac-Man or Donkey Kong or something like that, I don't know, back then, whenever it was. But I remember Dad entering into the joy of that. Nothing sinful, but laughter and a good time and the fruit of that was Dwayne Jelinek giving his life to Christ. I just told his last name. <laughs> giving his life to Christ. And now for 40 years, he's been in the process of sanctification and growing to such a degree that he was part of the decision-making process that called my brother Levi, Dan's son, to be the sixth pastor of that church. Laughter communicates confidence in God's power to change even the hardest of cases. When we built this church building, I came in one day when the guys, the subcontractors that our general contractor had hired, the subcontractors came in, the guys that were laying the tile out here. And the, the general contractor introduced me to the subcontractors laying the tile. He said, do you remember this guy? His name is Richard. My jaw dropped, my eyes got wide. I did. I remembered Richard from when I was working for a subcontractor in my college days, getting my master's degree. He worked for the general contractor at the time that we worked for on a construction site, and he was vile. I remember witnessing to him. He mocked the gospel. And I remember in my own way coming to the point, like, what's the use of this? Even bringing it up, and we'd cross paths, and it was vileness, and it was wickedness, it was mockery, the things of God, when people tried witnessing to him. And then, one day I walk in here, years later, 
And Richard is our tile guy, laying our tile here at the church. And he is a transformed, born-again child of God. Somebody had faithfully and consistently, at the Holy Spirit's perfect timing, given Richard the gospel. He had recognized his need of Christ, trusted Christ as Savior, and God had turned his life around. <laughs> if God can do that, he can save anybody. And what that does is the realization of God's power to transform a life allows me as a father, as a husband, as a leader to be able to legitimately laugh even in the face of the hardest of cases, even in the worst of circumstances. I love my dad. Very much, you know that. He is not perfect. But I love, I love to be around my dad when we start telling stories and talking about the past and laughing or even something that's taking place right now. And he'll rear his head back and then he's got this wheeze. It's almost like I need more air but I can't get it when I laugh. <laughs> he'll do that. He'll rear back and laugh. And, and, I, and again, I know that not everybody expresses their joy that way. I get that, okay? Let me just say this. However you express joy, express it, would you? It's going to have an impact on somebody. Joy, the visible evidence of the sense of well-being that is the result of trusting in God, in His goodness, and in His love, and it is the fruit of God's Spirit produced in us. In the last several years, my dad has failed to realize that he is aging. And he's gotten hurt doing things my brother should have been doing. And it's not my brother's fault. It's just dad would decide to go lean a ladder up against a tree and cut a branch off. And then the branch would fall and spring and knock the ladder off the tree while he's still holding a running chainsaw. And while he's midair, he has to do what he can to toss the chainsaw away. He should have never done that. That chainsaw hit the ground, and the handle of it came back and hit him in the mouth and split his lip wide open. Recently, I've shared with you about my dad taking that zero-turn radius tractor straight up a hill, and when it started to slip, instead of backing back down, because he wasn't familiar with how to run one, he rammed the controls forward and flipped the thing over backwards on him. And hit him in the face, broke his nose. We thought it broken shoulder, all kinds of facial bones, all of that. But something sticks out to me when I look at these pictures of my dad. With his mom, for some reason, she'll take pictures of dad in the emergency room with his face looking like he just got beat up in a back alley somewhere. And then she'll send him. She'll put him on the family WhatsApp, and it's out there for everybody to see my dad looking like somebody's just laid into him. But you know what struck me about dad in both of those situations? Is as much pain as he's in when mom takes those pictures, his lip laid open like this, he's going. His nose turned off to one side, his face, his eye swollen up, he's like. And I, listen, I'm not in any way making fun of dad at all. I'm saying praise God for a man who can smile even through the middle of that. And how that is just a small token, a small token 
of how a father's laughter, his joy, his sense of humor has impacted succeeding generations. And so I say, not just to dads and granddads, but to moms and grandmas too, to all of us, I say to us, let's not forget the power of laughter to shape, to secure, to stabilize, to communicate the truth about our God. Father, grateful to you, Lord, for this thought, this simple thought from Scripture and how you've used it to challenge me lately, convict me lately. And I pray, God, that you'd take the truth that we've considered this morning from Psalm 2 and the application in our lives and that you would drive it home deeply, not just in the heart of every father and grandfather here, but mothers and grandmothers, all of us, Lord, recognizing the power of the right kind of laughter and what that communicates. And then with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to say this. There's another statement in the scriptures that expresses something else that brings great joy to the Heavenly Father. The Bible says when one sinner repents, there is joy or rejoicing in the presence of the angels. It's not the angels. Many times we think it's the angels that are doing the rejoicing, and to a degree that may be the case, but the Bible says the rejoicing is in the presence of the angels. Who could that be? Well, when I look at Luke in the context of that passage of Scripture, and I see a father rejoicing because his prodigal son has returned, do you know there's another thing that makes the father laugh with great joy? And it's when a sinner trusts Christ as Savior and comes to the Lord for eternal life. And listen, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, you don't have the assurance of eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know that your trust in Christ as Savior would bring great joy to the Father because that's why he gave his Son. And it would allow you then through your faith in Christ and trust in Christ as Savior to have the assurance of entering into the joy of the Lord when you pass this life into the next life. If you don't know Christ as Savior, let me tell you something, today is the day of salvation, and that's another thing that brings great joy to the Father. Father, if there's one here this morning who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that they would heed the admonition of Scripture that today is the day of salvation. And before they leave today, they would come to me or come to one of us here at the church that can take a Bible and show them from the scriptures how to be saved today. Lord, would you conclude our service here in the next few moments with your blessing and I pray this in Christ's name.